Well, it's so good to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Josh. I'm a church planting resident here at Hepzibah. My family and I, with some of our friends, we're planting Bridgepoint Church in Nightdale. We'd love to talk with you more about that if you've got any questions or comments about that. But when I was about 19 years old, I was about a week away from hopefully stepping into a dream of mine that I had, which was to play college soccer as a goalie. And I was a week out, and I was hanging out with some of my friends, and I was riding a gator, okay? Um, not the cool kind, but like a John Deere gator. And there were about 10 of us that were, were piled into this thing. And, and for whatever reason, and I don't know why we had that many on there. For me, it probably had something to do with a girl along the way. But we're piled into this thing, and I'm facing backwards, and I jump off the side, and, and I lose my balance, and I break my fall with my wrist a week out from college soccer tryouts. And not only did I break my fall, but I ended up breaking my wrist, although I didn't know it at the time. So I did what probably most 19-year-olds in that situation would do. I rested for about a day and a half, and then I just started taping it, for the, and then I ended up making the team, and I played all season as a goalie with, with, with that wrist that was taped. I would ice it from time to time. It would swell. But what I was doing that whole time was I was basically just treating the symptoms, not the cause. And so if I had some pain, I could pop some Advil, I could tape it up, I could ice it, treat the symptoms, move on, treat the symptoms, move on. I figure once the season ends, it, I will rest my wrist and it will heal in a great way. Well, the season, August, September, October, beginning of November, season ends. So I start resting it a little bit, rested a little bit more, and it's December. I'm now headed home for Christmas break and my wrist is still in a great deal of pain. So I went to the doctor. And to make a long story even longer, a little bit more details, I went to the doctor and they said, hey, here's the deal. If you would have just wrapped this up and not used it for two weeks, it would have healed right and you would have been totally fine. It was just a small break. However, since you did not treat the cause but you treated the symptom, your wrist actually grew back together on top instead of the bone coming together. So we're going to need to do surgery. We're going to need to put screws in your wrist. You're going to need to do physical therapy. You're going to need a couple different casts. And you're also going to need to drive two hours home from college so we can check on you. All of those things ended up happening. So I always will have this scar here to remind me of a not so bright time in my life. But as I think back on that moment, have you ever been in a place where you have treated the symptom and not the cause? And I'm not just talking about our physical being. We do it all the time. When I lived in Texas, I had this old Honda Civic, and I would show up to meetings covered in sweat because it was the Texas heat with no air conditioning. So I had this friend, and he had this magical juice called Freon, and I dumped it into my car, and for about a week, my car would be cold, and then I would be back to showing up at meetings covered in sweat. Here's why. What I really needed in that time and in that moment, a new compressor for my car, which I wasn't going to pay for. So I treated the symptoms not the cause. We do it, we do it in our, our private and our personal life as well. Some of us, we battle with anger. And so we think if I exercise more, if I sleep more, I won't be as angry. We may not respond as much in anger, but the anger is still there. Those of us that maybe have battled addictions from time to time, what do we do to, to, to curb that addiction? We find something that's less dangerous, less detrimental to our house, health and make that an addiction. Maybe we battle with anxiety, worry, depression. And we think if I can just distract myself, then I won't have to be as anxious. We're treating the symptoms and not the cause. Today, we are going to be jumping back into 1 Corinthians. If you haven't been here all summer, we've been traveling through the book of 1 Corinthians. And in that book, we see a group of people 
that are living in a time that's becoming increasingly more and more difficult. And it's in, in a culture that's becoming more and more corrupt. And so the Apostle Paul, a few years after the time of Jesus, is writing this book to help them walk wisely in a difficult, in a perverse, in a twisted, in a painful world. So what we're going to look at today as we think about addressing, addressing the root cause is we are gonna, we're going to look at a, a command that Paul says to look back. In other words, to learn from the past. And we're going to spend all of our time, as Paul is writing to his audience, they're spending the whole time, other than the last verse, looking with a with command and encouragement to look back. And as we look back, we're going we're gonna to see two things. One is we're going to really look quickly at a positive example of looking back. And then we are going to look at four negative examples that all tie together. And these four negative ans- examples are examples of the children of Israel, the people that were, were God's chosen people thousands and thousands of years ago, how they failed to address the root cause. And by failing to do that, it led to disaster time after time after time after time. So 1 Corinthians 10, jump in. We're going we're gonna to read verse 1. We're going to talk a little bit about it, and we'll, we'll keep move, moving forward here. So 1 Corinthians 10, 1 is this. A, we see this. 4, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Let me just say this. This is an, an urgent statement. It, he's pleading with his readers to remember what happened to Israel in the wilderness and he starts by reminding them of God's provisions, which he says is, is seen here and then in the verses that follow. Ultimately, Paul, Paul's writing, and, and it's the, the Israelites, let me just real quickly recap who they are. There are people, they are slaves in Egypt. And God sets them free. They escape Egypt, and then they move into the desert wilderness. And they spend 40 years there in this wilderness, wandering around, learning and really not learning valuable lessons, to be honest. Okay, they were slow learners. If there's any slow learners in the house, you can relate with this. And they're experiencing just the judgment, the punishment, and all of those things in that time and in that moment. And then finally, they make it to their intended destination. So Paul is saying, I don't want you to be unaware of what happened. Uh, and, and as he's saying that, right, they're, they're, he's, he's explaining to them. I'm, I'm going to jump to 11 and 12, and then we'll come back. He's saying the things that, you're, that you just heard about or that we are going to hear about today, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us to live at the end of the age. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So verse 1, verse 11 and 12, what are we seeing? Don't waste the lessons of the past. The lessons of the past will help you. Well, they will lay a foundation for your future. If you want to avoid the pitfalls, the mistakes, the dangers, all the, the sin of the past, pay attention and listen in. So that's th- those three verses we read. They're, they're warnings for his audience then, the Corinthian church, but for us as well to lean in, to listen, and then walk out in obedience what we're going to see here. And if we fail to do so, it's going to be disastrous, Paul's saying to his audience. It's going to be devastating. You will f- fail time and time again. So he starts out verses two through four with a positive example of what they can learn. He says this about the nation of Israel 1,300 years before. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ Jesus. Now, we could, we could park the bus right there. For our time today, we're, we're going to spend most of our time looking at the negative, but just so you can see what's happening here, there, there's a few things in play. Things are good because God was at the center. Things were good because they're depending on God. They are unified. That word all is used five times in the first four verses. They're, they're unified. They've got this oneness, this togetherness. It says they were baptized into Moses, which is, is basically a way of saying they were immersing themselves into Moses' leadership. Things were going really well. The wheels had not fallen off. Learn from that. They depended on God and life was good. Nevertheless, verse 5, and that word is kind of like, hey, wake up. Hey, nudge your neighbor. Hey, pay attention. Hey, don't miss this moment. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not, man, listen to these words, well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. He continues. Now these things happened as examples for us so that, we, we, we just mentioned this before with some other verses, that we would not crave evil things as they also craved or worship idols as some of them did. Now I want to just pause. We're going to come back to verse 7. But that idea of worshiping idols, that is going to be the central theme to their downfall. We know that because if you fast forward, Pastor Aaron's going to talk about it next week, but if you fast forward to verse 14, rooted in all of their cravings for evil things and rooted in all of the things that we're going to read about today is this idea of idolatry, of craving things that were detrimental to them. Now, for us as a culture, let, let's be honest. When we think of idols, I even put them up here on the screen, there's a few different pictures at times that we can have. We think about this, right? We think about people in other countries or other cultures. They make this big, ornate, expensive thing with jewels and, and precious metals, and they come systematically and intentionally, and they bow down and they worship it. Or maybe it's a little bit of a shrine that people will have on their mantle, over their fireplace, over their TV, in their car, but these little statues that they will worship, right? Or maybe even as a culture, we think of American Idol, right? Like this, this idea, but the reality is, generally when we think of idols, what do we think of? We th we think our minds, even if you haven't grown up in the church, we go back to kind of these, these brazen images. But here's what I want us to understand. What Paul is getting at and what's so relevant and so practical for us today is that idolatry goes far beyond a statue or an image. It goes well beyond that. In fact, for, for the sake of idolatry, I want, I want to just kind of level set a little bit here. There's, there's a couple things I want to draw our attention to when it comes to idolatry. And then we'll, we'll jump back in and we'll look at the four examples. But uh, idolatry is this, this idea that we find something to satisfy our souls, to satisfy our desires in place of God. In other words, we, we think that this thing is going to bring us joy or this thing is going to bring us inner peace or this thing is going to bring us happiness. And if I have this thing, then I will know that my life has meaning, my life has purpose. I will feel worth, I will feel significance, I will have value and purpose. That's what a lot of us would, would, would say and think, but that's an idol. And let me just pause and say, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm going I'm to press pretty hard into some things that, that are in this text this morning that, that Paul is calling out as he's calling out these Jesus followers. 
And I invite you to listen in. I invite you to listen into this conversation and, and, and honestly ask the question, is, is this logical? Does this make sense? Is this realistic? Because what we're going to see, and I love telling you this ahead of time so you can see the thread that's woven through that, that when he is in the center, when he is worshiped, when his words in the Bible are obeyed, that he will be honored and we will experience the greatest amount of good in our life. God gets the glory, we get the good, which is an amazing thing. And we're going to close in verse 13 with this powerful, powerful solution to it all. But idolatry, it says things like, if I only have this job, this status, this date, this possession, this accomplishment, this relationship, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have what I need. But here's the thing. All of us, church people or not church people, we've all had those moments in our life where we've reached what we would call the pinnacle. As young athletes, maybe it was a championship. Maybe it was in our career. Maybe it was in our relationships. Maybe it was financially. And we reached the pinnacle, and all of a sudden we're like, now what? This isn't working. Man, I, I, I thought it, but it's not what, like, and, and we don't really know what to do with it. I'm not a mathematician. In fact, I managed to get through college with no math. But I love this quote from a 16th century French mathematician and theologian. He says this, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. We maybe couldn't have articulated this, but every one of us in our hearts, we know this is true. We have felt this. We have seen this. We have watched this in others. We have maybe experienced this in our own life, this vacuum that's pulling, that we throw everything in it, into, and it's sucking all these things, in, and ultimately it's designed for God. And an idol is when we take a good thing and we make it the ultimate thing, which is what makes it so dangerous, because oftentimes idols in our life are things that are applauded. They're things that we're told, you're a good dad, you're a good Christian, you're a good husband. But if we take a good thing and make it to the ultimate thing, ultimately we are left wanting and needing more. I think about it this way. My two most important relationships that I have, my relationship, outside of my relationship with God, is my relationship with Christy, my wife, and my kids. Really good things. If I take them and I make them the ultimate thing, a couple things. What happens when, as humans, they let me down? Not much to go on. What happens, God forbid, what happens if one of them passes away before I do. And I show up at the funeral and laying in the casket is my God and my idol and I have nothing because it's gone. And God has designed us to pursue those things but to pursue them with him at the center. And so that's why Paul is making this strong warning from 1,300 years prior. I just want to say one last thing before we jump back in. When we think of idols, oftentimes we think of money, we think of fame, we think of sex, we think of success. We think of entertainment. We think of possessions and all of those things. Those things are idols, to be honest. And if I would sit down with you and I would say, hey, what are some pain points in your life? Those things would probably come up. If I had said, hey, what, what are some, some issues or areas in your life that, that you feel like you're just coming back to the mistakes over and over again, or where you're most offensive or obsessive, those things would be the case. But I believe those types of idols, those are just surface, or those are symptoms. They're not the cause. Think about this way. If you've ever tried to get rid of the crabgrass in your yard, 
right? You, you cut it down and your yard looks good until it doesn't. And then that crabgrass just keeps coming back. Why? Because on the surface, it's doing one thing, but below the ground, it's something else. And the four things that Paul calls out are four, what I would call, and, and, and this idea didn't originate with me. Let me just say this real quick, a side note. If, if what you hear is helpful, pastor and author Tim Keller actually wrote an entire book called Counterfeit Gods, where he really kind of dives into this idea of these root idols or these things that are the symp- not just the symptoms, but they are the cause. And so for the sake of our conversation today, I want us to think about an idol as a good thing that becomes the ultimate thing. I want us to think about some things that are applauded, that are, that are at times helpful, that are beneficial, that are life-giving, but ultimately cannot and should not be life-defining. Let's jump back in. 1 Corinthians 10, 7. We'll, we'll call these four things out that, that Paul says. And by the way, all of our toes will probably get stepped on today. So if you're feeling good early on, just wait. All right, put your steel tip boots on. We'll, we'll, we'll keep diving in because Paul, Paul is an equal opportunity offender, okay? So, so let's, let's jump right in. Verse, verse 7, he's picking back up. He's, it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now note in your Bibles that, and, and on the screen, that is capitalized. That's capitalized because it is a quote from the Old Testament, specifically in Exodus 32. And it's a reference to, you're like, man, what do we know that's going on there? Well, in, in the Bible, context is always the key, and it's always king. And so here's what's happening. God, up until this point, for the most part, has spoken through his, his prophets or spoken orally through people. But now he's decided he wants to write something down. So he's taken Moses, the leader of the Israelites, the ones that have escaped from Egypt who are wandering in the wilderness, and he's taken him, and he's taken him up on the mountain, and he's given him the written law. Well, here's what's happened. The people get impatient. And they, they're like, man, where, what's going on? In fact, verse 1, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron, Aaron is Moses' brother. If Moses is the leader of the people, Aaron is kind of the spiritual leader of the people under God's authority. And so they go to Aaron. So he's now in charge while Moses is up on the hill. And they say, come, make us a God. In other words, a replacement, an idol who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I love that they say, this Moses. All right, they're like, they, they forgot about him. He hasn't been gone that long. That, that guy, you mean my brother? Yeah, that guy. Okay, but this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. So they're in this place where they are ready to give up on the God of the universe who has brought them and delivered them in so many ways and create this own God in their own way. And so Aaron finds himself in this ultimate dilemma that so many of us find ourselves in. Here's his dilemma. I've seen God work. I've seen the Red Sea parted and we've crossed over on dry ground. I've seen miracle after miracle. I've seen the faithfulness of God and I know what is true and I know what is right. I've got all these people in my ear. My brother's abandoned me. Who knows what's going on? Maybe God struck him. Like all of these thoughts. Am I gonna bow a knee to God or am I gonna bow a knee to people? And you know what he does? And you can read this in Exodus 32. You can continue reading this. Um, And let me just tell you, it's not a fairy tale ending, Okay but you can go back and read it. He ends up bowing a knee to the people and the results are disastrous. They make up their own idol. It's a golden calf and the results are disastrous. But the, the first thing that we see here from this example is we see this root idol of approval. At the heart of it, Aaron 
wanted to belong to those people. He wanted approval. It's this longing to be accepted or desired. He forgot about a standing in God. It's, it's people pleading, sometimes pleasing. Sometimes it's applauded as hard work. For some of us, it's the pursuit of success. It's this need for approval. Perhaps it came from this unhealthy need that we have because of a wound from a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a boss. But we just constantly find ourselves orienting ourselves to what do people think about me? How can I live for their approval? And, and to be honest, it's, it's why some of us, we, we find ourselves struggling with relationships because we're always seeking approval from someone other than God. And it just never, ever ends. It's driven us to post the way that we post on social media, to date the way that we dated years ago or currently, it, to drive the cars we drive, to live where we live, to school our kids the way that we school them. All of those things because this longing and this desire for approval and God is saying, I'm the only one who can solve it. I'm the only one that can fix this. I'm the only one that can address this. And ultimately, we're still lonely. And at its core, the need for approval, it's, it's really boiled down to this desire to belong which is God-given. But what is idolatry? We take a good thing and we make it the ultimate thing. For some of us, even in the church, we've done this. For years, we've been seeking God's approval because we think if we do enough of the right things and if we, we avoid enough of the bad things, then we're going to be okay. But yet we're always wondering, where do I stand with God? Or I've done all these things and it just doesn't seem like my life has been blessed. Here's the solution for this root idol of approval. We've got to remember ourselves the way that God sees us if we have a relationship with him. We are loved. We are treasured. We are a child of the king if we have a relationship with God. And our status with God, which should drive how we view our relationship with others, is based off of what he's done for us, not what we could ever hope to do. There's not enough good that we can do to earn God's approval. A few weeks ago, I was flying back from Guatemala, and I was on a flight from Miami to Raleigh-Durham. And before I moved here, I, 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 I did a bunch of flying. And I ended up getting a, a status with a particular airline that we were on. And that status allows me every so often to get upgraded. And so I'm on the plane, and the flight attendant comes back, and she's like, hey, Mr. Howard, do you have your, your checked bag with you? And, and I said, yes, I, or, or your carry-on bag. And I said, yes, I do. Uh, and my daughter Callie was flying with me. She doesn't have, have that status, but I did. And the flight attendant said, Mr. Howard, we have a seat in first class for you if you want to join us. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. And I'm not usually this good of a dad, but for, I, I think because we were on a mission trip, I was feeling guilty. And I was like, hey, can my daughter go in my place? And they're like, and, the, and she's like, yeah, I only have one seat, but, but that's fine. Even though she doesn't have status, like she can come and she can go. So, so Callie grabs her stuff and, you know, she couldn't get away from me fast enough, right? You know, she's sprinting to the front of the plane and she jumps into first class and she gets, you know, the fancy drink in the glass and she's got the wide seats that all of us envy when we walk by all the time. And, you know, she's getting like, I had the crushed pretzels. She had the real snacks, like all of these different things. And she's living the good life. But here, here's the thing that I love about that. She experienced all of that because of her relationship with her father. I had status, she did not, but she reaped the benefits. And as we think about our approval with God, which drives our relationship with others, our status comes from the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. That when God, our heavenly father, looks at us, he sees the goodness of Jesus. And that can impact and that can inform our need for approval. We can rest in that. Continuing on, verse eight, 1 Corinthians 10, eight. 
Another negative example it says, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and went 23, and 23,000 fell in one day. What does that mean? Again, we go back to the scriptures, Numbers 25. There's this, this situation where the, the Israelite men who knew what was right, knew what was wrong, they get seduced by the Moabites. And they end up mixing together the Moabite worship and their worship. And here's what was at the core of it. It was sexual immorality. It was worship that was, or it was, it was sex that was cast off as worship. And not just worship, but we're talking orgies. And, and we're talking things like, like, like child prostitution and just different gross, wicked, terrible, corrupt things that are happening here in Numbers 25. It's so intense, it's so severe that God wiped out 23,000 people in one day because it was so awful. And I get that, that's hard to hear that. How does God wipe out 23,000 people in one day? But here's what you need to understand. None of them were innocent, okay? None of them were innocent. And he was doing it because he understood that this idolatry that they were doing, it was so damaging, it was so detrimental, it was so awful, he had to deal with it. It's kind of like when, when we were watching what was playing out before we entered World War II. Most Americans realize it's going to be ugly, it's going to be tough, it's going to be difficult. There's going to be mass casualties in Germany, there's going to be mass casualties in Japan, but we've got to invade. We've got to attack because of what's at stake. And so that's what's happening here. And so God deals with this severely. But at the root of it all, for these individuals, is this idol of comfort, a longing for pleasure. Comfort says, I want privacy. I want a lack of stress. I want freedom. I want to have the ability to wind down. I want to experience good. But we go at it outside of God and it doesn't satisfy us. So whereas approval says, if I have enough money, people will see me and they will think I'm good enough. Comfort says, if I have enough money, then I will be set for life. Then I can buy the things that make me comfortable. Sometimes comfort looks this way for those of us, like I think about we're, we're about to step into college football season. And so for some of us, it's, it's dads that are spending too much time on the couch and the neglect of other things. And we're like, man, I just need some downtime. I deserve this. Moms, I need the me time. I, I need mom time. And yes, we need those things, but not at the cost of other relationships. And I can speak passionately about this because this is one of, one of the, the, the source idols in my life, one of the root idols in my life is I often find myself orienting my life around how comfortable I can be. But unfortunately, it also means at times we won't take risks. We don't walk in obedience to what God has called us to walk into. We say no to things because of what it might cost us. God has maybe pushing us to go on mission, to start a new ministry, to, to jump in and have a hard conversation, to do something that's gonna stretch us, and we say no. When we were living in Austin, we were in a position where, where and this, is, this was totally me, God had been nudging me for a few years. I, I, I think you should think about planting a church. But can I tell you something? I was making a good living. We loved the city of Austin. We loved the weather, the schools, the pools. We loved our relationships that were there. My kids were happy, right? Like I, I loved, I'll just be honest, I loved the fajitas that were there. Like all those kind of things. We're, we're loving all of those things. But I was bored, and here's what it came down to. I was so scared in my own life of, of the fact that, like, if I step out and do something new, what if I fail? And what about the unknown? I was comfortable. And I was bored. And it wasn't until I said yes that I began to really realize, man, this is what it looks like to walk in obedience. Because, again, we take a good thing. We take a good thing. 
a good house, good schools, good relationships, and we make them the ultimate thing. The solution for this is urgency, to, to make our days count. Paul continues looking back at the past. Verse 9, he says, Nor let us try the Lord. Maybe your Bible say, tempt the Lord, test the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Draw your attention here to Numbers 21. This is the same people group, wandering aimlessly. They're weary. They're tired. Things are outside of their control. God has fed and met their needs, but not in the way that they want him to. And so they become disgruntled. It says this, verse 4 and 5. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. Listen to the uh, conflicting statements here. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? This is interesting. For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this miserable food. So was the issue that there was no food? No. They didn't like what the food was. We loathe this miserable food. See, what was happening is God was meeting all their needs. He was providing all their needs. He provided their food. He provided their water in this miraculous way. And, and, and it was as much as they wanted to eat. But they didn't like it. Because here's why. Not only was it about comfort for them, but if we, it was about control. And if we keep reading, God didn't let this slide because, well, because of the cost of this. And you can add this passage to your list of passages that you go and read this afternoon. But again, it's not a fairy tale ending for them. But they were, here's, here's the thing, they were impatient. They didn't like how things were run. And things were not up to their standards. So they decided they wanted to take control. And they grumbled and they complained time and time again. And here's the thing, control rears its ugly head through good things at times. Like, every, like all the other things. Through things like standards, goals. The need for excellence, self-discipline, certainty, and confidence. And if certainty, though, is the ultimate thing, what happens when we step into a world pandemic and certainty is all of a sudden gone? If self-discipline is the ultimate thing, how self-disciplined is self-discipline enough? Like, where does it end? And you're on this hamster and you're on this rat race over and over again. Think about it this way. Maybe it's your health. I'm going to take care of my health. What happens when you get sick? Maybe it's your kids. I'm going to start my kids at such a young age. I'm going to feed them a certain way. I'm going to school them a certain way. I'm going to parent them a certain way. And I'm going to do all these things. And then what happens when they're 18 and they say, hey, dad, I want to be a TikTok star. You're like, what? You're like, I want to be a social media influencer. What? No, no, no. Like I had you in the right school. Like we did it ourselves. We, you know, I didn't feed you sugar till you were nine. Like all these different things. Right? Why? Because what we see is that many times control is an illusion, but it's something we worship. Maybe we're the people that struggle more than the rest for the test results to come back because we just assume that every biopsy is not going to be good. We're the people that probably should stay off of WebMD, okay, because of just where our mind goes. Can I tell you that this one is, is really personal for me? just like the one of comfort. The first funeral I ever did was for my friend Mark. Mark Edwards died at 33 of lung cancer. He, I was about 29 at the time. He had never smoked a day in his life. He was active. He was an athlete. He was a soccer coach. He was a good dude who loved Jesus and invested in young men. And he got sick and he died in six months. 
as I'm preparing for his funeral, I'm also watching my sister-in-law who had just gotten married, 24 years of age, had just been diagnosed with leukemia. So these people close to me, I'm seeing this. And all of a sudden, it was, it was too much for me to handle on my own, but I tried to go at it alone. And so I end up developing this massive anxiety about my health because I realized even though I was healthy, there were things about my health that I couldn't control. I ended up becoming this hypochondriac. I ended up with this massive anxiety. But not only that, for me, this anxiety, it leads to this thing that I had never experienced in my life called depression. Up until that point, depression was just something that I said, you just need to pray more or try harder and God will take it away. I'm just, just being honest, that's, that was my thought. But the clouds for me, the dark clouds would not lift. And I find myself, I, I, I couldn't sleep, but yet I wanted to stay in bed. Food tasted terrible and life lost its joy for me. Can I tell you where I found freedom? The first one was talking to people about it, honestly, talking to the right people about it. But the second one was acknowledging my insufficiency or acknowledging my inadequacy or acknowledging my lack of control and the lack of certainty in the world. And I began to experience freedom from that idol. Now, I will always battle that, that anxiety because that is how, because of my need for control. It doesn't make it right. And we're going to see at the end, there's an amazing solution. It's not an excuse. I'm just, I'm just being real and I'm being honest. But that idol of control, we just, we need certainty so bad. And certainty is a good thing. But here's the problem. God is the only and ultimate source of certainty. That's the only, that's the only promise we can cling to is promises of God. Those are the only promises. And until we understand that, we're going to wrestle through this in a big way. Verse 10. Again, he gets back to that complaining. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. There's many examples of, of grumbling of the children of Israel in the wilderness. But one specific one I would draw your attention to is Numbers 16. Moses and Aaron, they're leading the people. And they're leading them for the most part pretty well. Obviously, we read there's some... They're broken people leading. It's not great. Well, there's this guy named Korah, and he's one of the leaders. In number 16, you see it. And he apparently doesn't like that they're getting the limelight, that they have the power, that they have the, the, the control, the influence. And so what does he do? He grabs a bunch of his rowdy buddies together, and he goes after Moses. And he's like, basically, hey, Moses, we don't think you should be in charge. And for, for sake of time, we're not going to read through that whole passage together. You can read it again. But basically, Moses says, all right, bro. If that's what you think, let's let God decide which one of us is the authority, which one of us is in control, which one of us should be leading. And long story short, Moses wins. Things do not turn out well for Korah and, and his friends. Like God affirmed Moses' leadership. But the example of that the thing driving their grumbling, the thing driving their complaining was this thirst for power. And power is this, it's a longing for influence or recognition. It's a longing for this desire. We might say, I just want to be respected. I just want to be feared. Or maybe your life song is, is, is all I do is win, right? Like that's me. I'm just, I'm competitive. I'm driven. I, I, I want all of these things. But at the heart of it, it's the desire, the unhealthy desire for power. Maybe you can relate with singer and songwriter Madonna. And I share this with you with such compassion because parts of this certainly resonates with, with where I've been. She says this, I have an iron will 
And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I've all, I'm always struggling with the fear that I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre. She continues, my drive in life is the horrible fear of being mediocre that's always been pushing me, pushing me. Even though I've become somebody, I still have to approve that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. In that, you see this, this mix of a need for approval and power. But her last sentence, my struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. I want you to think about that emotion, because in a second, we're going we're gonna to look at verse 13, and we're going to unpack that idea that all of us have, that we feel trapped. But here's the thing about someone with power. People are often scared of you. They're scared to let you down. They're fearful to tell you how they feel. And you may or may not be aware of it. Your title matters to you. You remind everyone what your title is over and over again. And if they don't get it right, you remind them. And oftentimes the emotion of anger is very real for this person because it's just that power and anger, right? They're there. And the solution for this the solution for this is for us to acknowledge, right? To acknowledge that only one being is omnipotent, and that's God. To acknowledge our dependence on that omnipotent, all-powerful being. And that's how we push past it. Now, I said I was going to read through the, the teachings of Paul and that he would probably offend all of us. And if he hasn't, maybe we need to dial in a little bit more on, on listening to the Holy Spirit. But many of us, we may say, how am I supposed to live out these solutions? This is impossible. This is too big for me. I, I, I could never do this. You, maybe you feel like Madonna. My struggle has never ended and it probably will. The gospel brings grace. The gospel brings hope. Check out verse 13. If you've missed all of this, man, dial into this. I love this verse 13. It says this, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. In other words, we all face the same things. You're not experiencing something new, and you can't blame God because it's not new. Or, or another way of saying this is, listen, you might feel like what you're going through is worse than someone else or it's different than someone else, but, but let's keep listening. It says, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. In other words, be encouraged. God knows your breaking point. God knows your limits. Your limits, your breaking points, your areas of vulnerability are different than the person next to you. And God, in his omnipotence, in his all-knowing, all power, he's keenly aware of that. And he's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you are able. In other words, everything is resistible. The devil made me do it doesn't work. I was just born this way doesn't work. This just, I, I, I just make a lot of mistakes. No, those are sin. That's sin. You've given into temptation, and God is making a way out. Let's call it what it is. Let's, let's call it what it is. But the solution is right here in front of us. With this temptation, God will provide the way of escape also, so that, man, praise the Lord, we will be able to endure it. Nothing superhuman, nothing beyond what you can handle, and always always a way of escape. It's amazing. 
as the band comes forward in a room this size, there's two groups of people. Jesus followers, Christians, those of you that at one point in time you entered into a relationship with God, let me just say this to you, a couple things, real quick. One, don't satisfy and don't settle for imitation. Don't settle for the fake. Don't settle for the phony. Don't give prey to the poser when you have the real deal that's right there that has the ability to satisfy your soul. An idol is what robs you from the, what God truly offers. Then we need to treat the root. Treat the root of it. Because when you do that, number two is you can overcome. So don't settle for the imitation and you can overcome. Not you alone, but we just read verse 13. You, as you lean on God, can overcome because God has overcome. No temptation is too hard, too difficult, too powerful for us to overcome. And start with a place of confession. So as we sing here in a minute, the opportunity for you is to confess. First to God, but then James 5 tells us that there's power in confessing to others as well. Maybe it's confessing to someone else. Maybe it's when the band starts, it's coming forward and just asking for prayer for myself or, or one of the leaders of our church. And then for the seeker in the room, perhaps today for the first time you've realized why it's always felt like there was a missing piece in your life. And here's what I want you to understand. The root cause is something that only God can fix and he wants to. Perhaps you've tried everything or almost everything and it hasn't worked. Here's what I love. God is willing to be your last resort. If you come to me and I give you advice and you walk away and ignore it, I'm probably gonna be like, I told you so. God, when you come back to God, he doesn't say I told you so. He says, I wanna be your last resort because once you find me, I am your last resort. I'm the last resort you will ever need. I'm the last thing you will ever need to cry out to. And so God is okay being your last resort. And today can be that day to see that, to experience that. And God wants you to have the status of his son, Jesus Christ, so that when God looks at you, he sees the perfect nature of Jesus Christ in you. And that happens as we step into a relationship with Jesus. And when you have Jesus' status, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your broken past, he sees your bright future because of Jesus. And to have that status as a follower of Jesus, to have that status as a, as a Christian, it's, it's a really simple thing. And I want to invite all of us to close our eyes, to bow our heads. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, I'm going to invite you to pray a, a simple prayer in the quietness of your heart. And this prayer it is not, the, the words have meaning if we believe them. And it's, it's this prayer. So would you pray with me if you've never given your life to Jesus? God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit I'm a broken person. And I believe that Jesus, the Son of God, is the only way for me to be forgiven. I invite you to be my Savior. I invite you to be the one who satisfies my soul. 
Please come into my life and forgive my sins.